Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of MindBuddyGreen, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at MindBuddyGreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. This episode is sponsored by our friends at Sunbasket. If you're not familiar with Sunbasket, they're a meal kit delivery service that tailors their ingredients to your specific dietary needs and preferences. So no matter if you're paleo, vegetarian, vegan, or gluten-free, you can choose from over a dozen recipes and get a box of delicious meals delivered right to your door each week. And you can now get $35 off your first order when you head over to sunbasket.com mbg. That's sunbasket.com mbg. Personally, my wife Colleen and I have been obsessing over their Lean and Clean box, which features meals that are high in protein, gluten-free, and free of added sugars. Being busy entrepreneurs, I'll admit that we don't get to spend as much time in the kitchen as we like. But some basket meals are super easy to prepare in less than 30 minutes since they come with pre-made sauces and spice blends that are beyond delicious. My New Year's intention this year was to actually eat more fresh vegetables. Granted. I already eat a lot, but there's always room for improvement. And Sunbasket has helped me do just that. Now we sit down at least two home-cooked, veggie-heavy meals a week with our baby daughter, Ellie, who has even started to eat some of the greens we give her. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, I guess. We also love the flexibility of Sunbasket and have been ordering their family basket when we know we'll be entertaining friends and family. And since we travel a lot, we appreciate the fact that you can skip meals at any time. The best part though, is the fact that we can feel really, really good about what we're ordering. Eating sustainably is something that's really important to our family, as I'm sure it is for yours too. Sunbasket's head chef, Justine Kelly, is obsessive about their sourcing, and the company is super picky about the farmers, ranchers, and fishermen they work with. That means responsibly raised meats, sustainably sourced fish, organic pasture-raised eggs, and organic non-GMO tofu all of which comes in recyclable packaging. So again, right now you can get $35 off your first order of Sunbasket just by going to sunbasket.com slash mbg. Happy cooking. This is Colleen Wachab, co-founder at MindBodyGreen and wife of your podcast host, Jason Wachab. We're excited to share that this episode is brought to you by Third Love, At MBG, we celebrate bodies of all shapes and sizes and appreciate brands that do too. Third Love is a new lingerie line every woman should know about. Their mission is to create bras that fit better and feel amazing. As a new mom, one of the most important things about shopping is convenience. To find the right size, Third Love has designed the Fit Quiz, which I love because it only takes a minute. They prompt you with questions about your current favorite bras and any fit issues you typically experience to find a size that's uniquely yours. They make it so easy to try too, with free returns and exchanges. Shopping and trying on bras from home is so much more comfortable than the hassle of going to a store in person. And let's be real for a second, nothing's worse than an ill-fitting bra. It's uncomfortable, leaves marks, and can even change the look of what you're wearing. With a range of sizes from AA through G, and incremental half cup sizes, which is something Third Love invented, there are 60 different sizes. This year, make the change that will change the way you think about bras. Go to thirdlove.com mbg now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. 
That's thirdlove.com slash mbg. Thirdlove.com slash mbg. Hey, everybody. I just want to take a quick moment to thank you all for listening to the podcast and to say that we want to listen to you. So if you have any questions, any dream guests, we are all ears. I would love to hear from you. So ask me anything and stay tuned for the answers or your dream guests on this very podcast. Send your questions to podcast at mindbodygreen.com. That's podcast at mindbodygreen.com. And I look forward to hearing from all of you. Thanks so much. And let's go back to the podcast. Dr. Deepak Chopra is a man who needs no introduction. He's a prolific, best-selling author and spiritual icon. His latest book, The Healing Self, a revolutionary new plan to supercharge your immunity and stay well for life, is co-authored with Dr. Rudy Tanzi and a must-buy. It is a privilege and an honor to welcome Dr. Deepak Chopra to the Mind Body Green podcast. Deepak, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jason. It is an honor and a privilege to have you here. Thank you. It's delightful to be in your space. So let's go back in time, back to, even though you're still a doctor, Dr. Deepak Chopra, practicing I'm medicine. Still a doctor. I know you're still a doctor, but like yeah. the white coat and cutting people open and all that stuff in yeah. Boston to prolific, best-selling author, spiritual icon. Let's talk about that, that journey. Okay. It was another lifetime. <laughs> I'm, I'm still a doctor. Some people call me a witch doctor, but I keep my license in California and Massachusetts. Um, still, we have a medical practice in California as well. So um, I don't think I ever moved away, but I trained in internal medicine and then endocrinology. For those who don't know what the word means, it's the study of hormones. And then I trained in neuroendocrinology in the 70s, which is a new discipline, but still um, a discipline. I trained with the best people in the world. And we were looking at what are now called neuropeptides or neurotransmitters. Some of these have become brand names, you know, opiates, endorphins, um, oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin. Uh, But when we were studying them, we didn't know much about them other than there was a way to look at them, uh, a technique called radioaminoassay. And uh, one day, one of my colleagues, who's now deceased, by the way, um, Candice Pert, who was at Georgetown, but I used to see her at conferences. She ended up being um, the chief of brain chemistry at the NIH for a while. She used the word uh, molecules of emotion, um, which I thought was an amazing insight for that time. She said, these chemicals, these are molecules of emotion. I'm in a different place right now where I don't think that anything that's a molecule is real. We'll come back to that. (laughs) (laughs) At that time, that was a very uh, insightful comment. And I told her you should write a book about this, which she did. It was called Molecules of Emotion. She was a PhD researcher in a different university. She discovered the endorphin receptor, actually, uh, which is a big deal um, because 
exploded this whole field of neurochemistry. Mm-hmm. But as a physician, I was not a PhD like she was. As a physician, I knew uh, with conviction that two people could get the same medicine for the same illness, see the same doctor, and have completely different outcomes. So while biology is considered a science, um, medicine is both a science and an art. And uh, human biology particularly is unpredictable, although you can statistically dictate outcomes with treatment. Mm -hmm. But you don't know where a person falls on that spectrum. One person can die given the same treatment, the other person can recover completely given the same treatment. So what else is going on? And these two things, the research in molecules of emotion and the clinical insight that human beings respond differently to medical treatment kind of led me to start thinking about mind-body connections, uh, states of consciousness, emotions. And what was your health back like then? In the beginning, terrible. I was uh, smoking, <laughs> smoking uh, drinking. yeah, drinking too, uh, frequently to excess, especially on Fridays. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, I was busy also. After my training, I had uh, practiced. I was teaching at the various medical schools in Boston uh, as an instructor in medicine. So I had medical students, etc. I had a busy practice. I saw 50 patients in a day, 30 in the out, wow. uh, 30 as outpatients and 20 in the hospital. I had many patients in intensive care. Not much time to take care of yourself. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was very crazy. And it was a crazy time. I remember resuscitating a patient with uh, a cardiac arrest, intubating the patient, putting him on a respirator, inserting a pacemaker, and then going outside the hospital to have a cigarette with my <laughs> colleagues. Wow. <laughs> interesting time. <laughs> and so you start to make this connection. You're, you're, you're looking at patients and you're seeing same tre- the art and science and you start to, you're starting to draw some conclusions around the mind-body mm-hmm. connection. What, mm-hmm. what happens next? I noted, um, I used to take notes uh, of my patients, um, those that recovered and those that didn't, and their stories. I also, Right in the beginning, I realized that patients came with a story. They didn't come with a diagnosis. They came with a story. Some came with a diagnosis. Is that in one of your books? You've written like a zillion books. You've got like 20-plus New York Times bestsellers. I've read a lot of your books, but not all of them. Is that in one of your books? In the first book, Creating okay. Health. Yeah. Uh, what I did was I took the... It's now 87 books after that, so... <laughs> But so one out of four <coughs> is a New York Times bestseller. It's a good batting average. It's like uh, winning the lottery. You can never <laughs> predict. Um, but this first book was about patients and their stories, and nobody wanted to publish it. Um, I also submitted the stories to medical journals because unusual case reports. They didn't want to publish it. I bet it. they loved it. So then no, nobody wanted to publish So I published it myself. I saw an ad in the New York Times something called Vantage Press. It was a vanity press. And (laughs) if you gave them $5,000, they'd print 500 books for you. So that's what I did. And then a friend of mine placed the book in the Harvard Coop, which is now Barnes & Noble's in Cambridge. 
and some agent uh, got it as a birthday present from her son. And she called me and she said, why is this self-published? I said, I couldn't get a publisher. So she got me a publisher, Houghton Mifflin in Boston, and the book became a national bestseller. Sure. It was my first book. So when do you, at this point, have you already done your immersion in meditation? And, and have you, when, when, so I'm curious about that and studying meditation and that, how, how that changed your thinking. And also, when in this process did you say, I want to stop practicing medicine the way I've been practicing and start practicing in a different, different way? It was um, a series of happy accidents. I didn't plan any of this, you know. Um, uh, after I started practicing meditation, I happened to meet uh, the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. The man who taught the Beatles? Yeah, man who taught the Beatles. I actually became very close to George Harrison oh, wow. later, and we traveled India, etc. And... Uh, he kind of picked me out of a crowd because I think I was the only Indian in this conference. So <laughs> <laughs> he asked me to come to his room. And uh, he introduced me to some of the ancient healing traditions, Ayurveda, etc. cetera. Um, but a lot of esoteric stuff, which I didn't take to, you know, like Vedic astrology in the beginning. Sure. And lots of stuff that <clears throat> was totally alien to me. But I was getting interested in mind-body, but also in consciousness. And so, you know, I was under his mentorship for at least 10 years. And then I left the TM organization for various sure. reasons. But I became obsessed with uh, understanding consciousness. I was still in Boston, and I realized that my colleagues were kind of embarrassed about all the stuff I was talking about. Uh, they didn't understand what I was saying. It was totally alien to them. I had heard rumors that I might be fired from my professional jobs of teaching at the university. So what were some of the things that just drove them nuts? Ideas that you were expressing? I used to say things like wherever a thought goes, a molecule follows, and they'd kind of roll their eyes <laughs> <up>. <laughs> And, you know, states of consciousness are reflected as states in biology, things like that. Knowledge is different in different states of consciousness. Your brain evolves um, as consciousness evolves. I still say those things, but more people are listening. Sure. And, uh, well, science is caught up in a huge way there, too. Yeah, but not really. I mean, yeah. science, I'll, we can talk about that sure. whenever. But, um, yeah, science... At least we now know that um, lifestyle medicine, mind-body medicine as it's called, uh, has a legitimacy with um, things like neuroplasticity mm -hmm. and epigenetics and gene regulation and the role of inflammation and you know how inflammation in the mind affects the brain, which affects the body, which affects everything from social behavior to personal relationships. So there is a holism creeping in. And as I said, 87 books later, there's a lot of receptivity. <laughs> so that. back then, when do, you, when do you eventually walk away from practicing medicine? I that walk way, that, way? that way definitively only in 1990 or so. Yeah. Uh, before that, I'm walking away slowly. I'm giving lectures, I'm giving talks, sure. I'm writing books. But then in 1991, I went to California 
I met a colleague that I'd met at various conferences before. He was a neurologist. He's passed away too, unfortunately, of a brain tumor. He was a neurologist, and he said, why don't you come to California? They'll be much more receptive to you. Sure. So I said, okay. So, you know, at the drop of a hat, I told my wife, we're moving to California. My kids were now in late high school or entering college. And uh, so we just moved to California, started a center, and uh, slowly built a practice, actually, sure. a med- medical practice with other physicians in what we now call integrative medicine. But it was the first such practice and still exists. We have sure. lots of doctors and we have now more doctors joining. Technically, I own the practice, but you know, I'm hardly there sure. to see patients. But we do conferences for, we train medical doctors, we train health professionals. Our courses have been certified by the American Medical Association now for CME credits. So it all happened slowly. Then I got to become a professor at UCSD Medical sure. School. What in this process? And I know at some it point... Was it was unfolding it, it, by itself. Well, in your ascent, that you did have that big Oprah moment, too, where all of a sudden you're on Oprah and start appearing there, and, and that, that played a role in this that as well. That played a role, but you know, TV, my... my Quantum Healing was a national bestseller before that. Before Oprah. Seven Spiritual Laws had nothing to do with Oprah. That's my, I like that one. That's my But favorite. that had nothing to do with Oprah. Sure. It was totally word of mouth. However, Oprah was a big moment. You know, when I wrote Ageless Body, Timeless Mind, and she did that one-hour, one-to-one interview, I we sold 800,000 books in the first uh, week after that the printers couldn't keep up with it and then you know a million books in less than a month and the book is still selling uh, so many years later and then of course i started to offer these meditations with oprah a few years ago online and we've reached six million people are now doing those meditations so it's it's pretty wild none of this was planned by the way so if you look at you know, wellness has come a long way, mm-hmm. and you are absolutely one of the pioneers who's made that possible. And what, when I think about wellness today, I think of a lot of amazing people with strong personal brands who are successful in a commercial sense. And you were like one of the first people to really do that. Uh, what do you think about wellness and, and being commercially successful? And sometimes there's a little backlash, people question it, and in some some ways it's acceptable, and some people struggle with that also. The struggle comes from a very strange cultural uh, mindset, Uh, and it's really almost a schizophrenic uh, guilt that people have, (laughs) which um, actually uh, is mind-boggling. For example, right now, the United States makes more money than any other country by selling weapons. Mm. Okay, We have more weapons in the world, and the biggest purveyors of weapons are the United States, England, France, Germany, and uh, a few other countries. Russia, up there, Russia probably, yeah. China now. And, you know, we have the capacity to kill humanity 17 times over, but it makes money and guns make money, and nobody 
questions that. Sure. Nobody questions questions mechanized death in the name of nationalism or mm-hmm. war or terrorism. Uh, nobody apologizes for uh, making cigarettes or alcohol or other drugs. Uh, all you have to do is see a commercial on network TV and, you know, there are these two people playing tennis and there's sure. music in the background and it's about, you know, taking this drug for a migraine or something and then that's one minute and the next seven minutes are about all the things it could do to you from causing sexual impotence to death <laughs> and everything in between. And this is considered normal. Sure. So the more I think about this thing, about you know feeling some kind of guilt about making money by helping people, I think it's totally insane. I think we are in an insane world where um, things like uh, pornography, weapons, drugs, sure. all of this is considered normal. And helping people and making money off it is considered somehow not quite right. This is an insane world, and if you <laughs> if you don't recognize that, then you're declaring your insanity as well. So what do you say I to people? I think the future will be when the only way to make money is by helping people. I love that. But what do you say to people? Some people just feel a little guilty in the wellness world. Good people who do well, and they feel a little, like, what do you it's think that is? It's a Judeo-Christian guilt. <laughs> That's all I can say. <laughs> It's a cultural so, indoctrination. So you mentioned this crazy world we live in. It's hard to, you know, not read the news of whether it's mental health issues, violence, all the shootings, climate change, political, political, debate, yeah, debate. It's just insane. It's in like how could you, you know, we believe in in connection here at Mind Buddy Green. I know you believe in connection. Like how do how do you stay connected? And how do we keep that connection and, and stay positive and embrace some of these spiritual values when it seems like the world is crumbling? And what can we do? You know, Jason, how, how old are you now? 43. I'm 71. <laughs> okay, so at different ages, you have different uh, priorities. At this moment in my life, I have no personal ambition. Zero. I'm slowly divesting myself of all business activity. I'm focusing on how to, as a non-profit, uh, help alleviate suffering and pain in the world and what's the most practical way to do it. And I'm also focusing on my deeper knowing and understanding of what is reality behind, beyond our sure. human constructs based on perceptual experiences. So I'm in a different stage in, all, in my life. So I, I, don't, uh, I, I don't focus on being positive. I focus on being realistic, recognizing the insanity of the world, which it is insane. Sure. I, you know, how can you call the world normal when there is um, social and economic injustice, there's war in the name of God, in terrorism, mm-hmm. in the name of a higher cause, there's eco-destruction, there's extinction of species, there's mechanized death, nuclear weapons, uh, drug trade, and just basic human suffering <coughs> of mm-hmm. the enormity. Not that it hasn't existed before, but now we have modern capacities like technology, cyber hacking, and all the weapons. Sure. So, And we still are stuck in a Bronze Age identity. 
So for me, right now, the task is how do we redefine identity? Is it possible? And it may not happen in my time, or we may go extinct. I mean, this is a distinct possibility right now with the modern capacities we have for destruction and the Bronze Age mythologies that we subscribe to and our tribal identities. I think being positive is almost like an oxymoron right now. You know, you have to force yourself to be positive, which I think would cause a lot of stress. So at this moment in my life, I'm independent of both positive and negative. I want to be realistic, sober, and say, is there a creative way to change this? And I believe there is. And I believe that um, it doesn't matter if I'm there to <laughs> see it sure. or not. Well, but there, there's a creative solution to every problem. And finally, it's not a mental solution. It's not an uh, intellectual solution. It's a spiritual solution. So what is that? But we have yeah. to understand what spirituality well, is first. Well, what, what is that? Let's talk about that. I know consciousness, spirituality. How does this all play a role into us as a society, as a culture, as a world? not only surviving, but turning things around? Well, through the ages, there have been luminaries who've tried to figure this out, what is fundamental reality, and a lot of them had very good access to it, you know, including Western philosophers like Immanuel Kant, and uh, more recently Wittgenstein, and many others, Spinoza in his own way, um, Schopenhauer, there were the sages of the... Upanishads, um, there were sages of the East, there were even mythical figures like the prophets of the Old Testament, some of them, um, that had a different view of reality, which in the last 500 years, since the scientific age took over, got um, kind of ambushed, sidetracked, lost, and people don't ask themselves this question anymore. In fact, if you were to use the word spirit or soul mm-hmm. or even consciousness, which is becoming respectable right yep. now. But if you use these words that people say, be practical, you know, it has nothing to do uh, with what we call everyday reality. You know, we're living in the age of artificial intelligence. We're living in the age of augmented reality, virtual reality. We're soon going to have robotic hybrids of humans, mm-hmm. half robots, half humans. So what are you talking about consciousness? You know, And yet, that which you call consciousness, which great uh, spiritual traditions have actually called spirit, um, that's the hard problem of science right now. If you go to um, the internet and you type out what are the open questions in science today, you'll find there are about 125 open questions, which means we haven't figured out what the answers are. The number one open question in science today is what's the universe made of? Now, that's a very interesting question because according to our current science, 70% of the universe is actually an entity that science calls dark energy. Mm -hmm. But when you go deeply into what is dark energy, it's a mathematical construct that mathematicians and physicists use in their equations Mm -hmm. to explain the fact that the universe is expanding faster than the speed of light. 
So the distance between galaxies is expanding right now faster than the speed of light. So even mm. though our science tells us that the universe came into existence 14 billion years ago with this mysterious sure. Big Bang, the cosmic horizon, which means the farthest distance from where you and I are sitting is 47 billion light years away because this expansion. And what's expanding is space. The space between galaxies is being ripped apart faster than the speed of light. Is that a fact or is that a mathematical explanation for actually making sure that the standard model of physics works? Mm. That's my question. But in any case, 70% of the universe is this mysterious unknown thing. That leaves 30% of the universe, of which 26% is invisible dark matter. And the reason it's called dark matter is it's not atomic. You can't see it because it doesn't reflect light, absorb light, emit light. So why call it matter? Well, it explains most of the gravity in a galaxy. So we're living in the Milky Way galaxy. Now, according to current science, there are two trillion galaxies, 700 sextillion stars. All of that is a very small part of the universe. Only 4% of the universe is atomic, of which 99.99% of the universe is invisible interstellar dust. So we can't see that either. The visible universe is 0.01%. That's 2 sure. trillion galaxies, 760 stars, uncountable trillions of planets. But atoms are particles, and particles are also waves of possibility. So what is the universe made of? The best answer science can give you is made out of nothing. So that's the number one open so, question. The second open question is, What's the biological basis of consciousness? Right now, you're looking at me, all that's going to arise is photons. All that's going to your brain is an electrical current. All that's happening in your brain is electrochemistry. But you're experiencing a three-dimensional world with sure. color and sound. So we don't know what consciousness is. In other words, we don't know what existence is and we don't know what awareness of existence is. This leads to a very interesting possibility. And that is, there's only consciousness. Everything well, else is uh, a construct. Well, that's where I'm going. If that's true, that everything is consciousness, and there's how many people on this earth? If, if we are truly connected, as is universal consciousness, if you could wave your magic wand and everyone could do something, what should we do to make this a better place? Is it... There are many ways, practical but, ways. But if we are, you know, if we are all connected, mm -hmm. and you could do that, and you believe in, in collective consciousness, and is it expressing love? Is it meditation? Is it, you know, switching from being fear-based to love-based? Is there, is there something, you know, I, I think where you're going is, you know, the crazy world, and, and, and part of that is due to the collective consciousness of what's happening in the world. We're seeing the results of that. So I know, I, I know it's a difficult I'll question. answer your question in two ways. Okay. One is very practical, and the other is um, the real answer. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Sure, I'll take it. So the practical uh, is uh, a rough translation of the four yogas. If you know the word yoga means um, 
in Sanskrit means yuj. It's the same word as the English word yoke, union. So the first yoga is the yoga of meditation, reflection, um, and uh, transcendence. Very practical. Mm-hmm. Okay. There are so many techniques these days. Everybody is familiar. Mindfulness and yep. you know all the various aspects of mindfulness, transcendence, etc. That takes you deeper into fundamental reality. The second is the yoga of love. Because if the origins of the universe are in a single consciousness, then love is the ultimate reality. Not just a sentiment or emotion, but love. It's the motivation for whatever we do. Even the harmful things we do are cry for attention, affection, appreciation, acceptance. Basically, people are sure. crying for love. And, and so, therefore, these days, it's almost a cliché. To say love and fear are opposite, but it's true. Fear separates you uh, from life, and love uh, unites you with life. And then it has aspects, emotional correlates, empathy, compassion, joy, equanimity, peace of mind. These are in Eastern wisdom traditions called uh, divine emotions. So yes, the way of love, uh, expressing love in action. The third is intellectual. Now, you know, I'm kind of biased towards that, even though I understand that the intellectual uh, path is a very dangerous path because soon you start to think you're very clever. (laughs) And the more you know, the more you realize that everything you know is actually a form of ignorance. But it's still a very attractive way <laughs> to me. Okay? And the fourth is what is called karma yoga, the way of action. That whatever you do, the underlying motivation is to alleviate suffering in the world. And so all these are very practical sure. ways. I love your prescribing okay. yoga. Yeah. No, it's, it's, yeah, prescription <laughs> is yoga, practical. But then on a deeper understanding, you really want to figure out what is reality. You use the word person. Mm-hmm. There's, what, 7 billion people in this planet. So, you know, what we call a person is a process in consciousness. There's no such thing as a person. If you say, I'm a person, then you you have to say which one. There was a baby once upon a time. There was a teenager. There was a toddler, there's this one I'm looking at, (laughs) and then this whole process will be over soon. And then what? You know, then everybody has their model theory, reincarnation, heaven, this, that. That's my next question. These are all theories. (laughs) These are human constructs. What we can say for sure is that which we call a person is a process. It's not an entity, Mm. right? It's a process. And what is it a process of? And where is this process occurring? What is it that knows that it's a process? That's consciousness. Okay, so right now, this experience we're having, Mm -hmm. it'll be over in a few minutes, right? Oh, we got like (coughs) another 45 minutes. Okay, but it'll be over. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We started. What happened five minutes ago is over, right? Yep. What happened a minute ago is over. What happened a second ago is over. And yet we call this reality. 
Wittgenstein said, our life is a dream, we are asleep, but once in a while we wake up enough to know that we are dreaming. So what do we wake up to? We wake up to the consciousness in which this dream, which is a very lucid dream, mm-hmm. because, you know, I took Uber to get here. That was part of my dream. It's over. By tonight, everything that happened today will be over. So we are right now in a lucid dream. And part of the dream is that which we call mind, body, and universe. They're a unified process in a human consciousness, collective consciousness. This is the human universe. It's not a dolphin universe or a bat universe. What does this look like to an insect with a hundred eyes? Where is this happening right now, this experience? People are listening to us. Where is the experience happening? They'll point to their brain, but there's no sound in the brain. Sure. Okay, this experience is happening in consciousness. Where is that consciousness? It has no dimensionality. So it's timeless. It's eternal. So once we start to wake up to fundamental reality, that's where the love really is. Then it's no longer a moral imposition. It's no longer something you need to do. You, You have no control. Love is your very nature. It radiates from you like light from a bonfire. And it's there. It's fundamental reality. What do you think happens after death? This dream is over. But you awaken to that in which the dream is happening. Does death scare you? No, not at all. In fact, I think I'm obsessed with death. Uh, Right now I practice something called Yoga Nidra, which means um, I am awake to consciousness even in my deep sleep. So I know what death is. So what do you feel when you lose a friend or family member or someone dies? You, like go, how do you, you go through whatever feels... do you think feels, about that process? You go through whatever feels natural in that state of consciousness. So grief is very much a part of that process. In fact, you should embrace it, live the happy memories you had and nurture them. But finally, that which we call grief, the energy of that will exhaust itself like everything does in and then, time. And then do you feel more connected to that person or do you feel like I'm going to see this person again or you feel you just don't... See, what we call I is not a person. <laughs> I is that in which the experience of persons happens, including that which you call sure. your own body. So right now, I is a non-local, impersonal, dimensionless timeless, eternal field. It's the eye within the eye that uh, religious uh, traditions speak of. You know, I am that, you are that. Before Abraham was, I am. You know, so this, you find this in all spiritual traditions because transcendence was an experience they had, those people who came up with these ideas. So, yes, as a person, you do everything that is natural to a person. But one day you have to wake up to the reality that the real I is not a person. It's that in which the ego I is an impermanent so phenomenon. What do you say to someone who's listening, who's, who's probably saying to themselves, like, okay, like, I, I, I get it, I, I'm, I'm buying this, but you know what? Every once in a while I just have like a terrible day. <laughs> like something happens, I'm really pissed off, or, you know, what do I do? Like, how, how do I train myself mentally? to get 
you know, I don't think people are going to get to your level someday, maybe some aspire to, but just to train themselves like, okay, this is me getting angry or I'm going to remove myself. What do you say to those people? Who- so it, this is um, where, you know, right now the most popular word in our body, mind, green world yep. is uh, mindfulness, sure. which is a, a kind of a misnomer because mindfulness implies your mind is full. So, But leave that aside. <laughs> it's a misnomer, but we are here with it. It's the ability to be aware of an experience while you're having it. So when you're stressed, so let's say you're going to be reactive to a comment somebody made, or you're stuck in a traffic jam and somebody blows their horn at you, or you read the news, or you watch Trump on sure. a television, you have an immediate reaction. If you could just put the pause button on for a second and observe your reaction to react, by and by, you would recognize that your reaction to react is a conditioned mind and a conditioned response. A biological robot. Sure. 99.9% of humanity does behave like biological robots. But the ability to watch your own self without judging yourself, and this is not something original. Krishnamurti said it. He said the highest intelligence... The highest human intelligence is the ability to observe yourself without judging yourself. That starts a process by itself of transformation. So whoever is stressed out there right now or who's listening to us, just turn your attention to that which is listening and you'll find a deep peace there that's unaffected by whatever is happening. Anybody can have access to it anytime. You know, um, Jesus had no special privilege. Actually, even Trump can get that experience if he's willing to put the pause button on and watch himself trying to complete a sentence. He can't complete if, a sentence. Maybe he's if he's listening right now, what's your one piece of advice I, I, for, for, for President Trump? I would say um, um, resign. And uh, then come and spend a week with me at the center for a retreat. Okay. Silent retreat. Maybe he's a listener. Who knows? Maybe Ivanka's listening. Okay, somebody's listening. (laughs) So social media technology, a lot of people struggle with that. And what's so interesting, you're prolific on social media and use technology, but at the same time, you have it together. And I think a lot of people struggle with being really mindful when it comes to devices and instant gratifications, do you think it's harder for people to take a step back when we're so reactive and you see something on Twitter and it's, oh, I have a, how do you balance? I have a routine, so I'll tell you my routine. Uh, it starts in the evening by I go to bed almost every day before 10, but frequently before 9, and sometimes even at 8.30. Okay, remember, this is a function also of getting older, which I hope brings a little bit of wisdom. Then I practice yoga nidra at night um, during my sleep, but I then practice two hours of meditation in the morning from four to six. So wake up at four. Yeah, Um, but I still get seven. Still doing yoga with our great friend Tara Stiles? Yeah, Tara has moved to Brooklyn. I know, she lives lives around the hood. I'm doing yoga with another teacher who's right uh, next to my apartment. But whenever I can see Tara, I do. Um, And I also, I have many yoga teachers right now. 
but Tara is one of my favorites. <laughs> I do yoga seven days a week. Wow. Then in the morning, I do one Instagram <laughs> and one Facebook Live, which is every day. That's so it's a lot, lot of people, yeah. a lot of people. <laughs> and the rest of the day, I personally don't engage in social media. I check social media again in the evening. My office might uh, announce a course or a lecture or something that's happening in the center. I'm not involved. And then in the evening, um, I check the news on social media for half an hour. And most of it is, you know, collective insanity. So <laughs> I just say next, next, <laughs> next. So, so it's a very simple life I have, you know. Um, and I don't use social media personally unless I think it's helpful. So I, I want it to be fun. I want it to help be helpful. And I want to reach people who want to be reached. Mm. I'm finished with those militant, uh, skeptical types, you know. So, I think that's a good policy. Yeah. So it, it's pretty easy for me at so this stage. For a guy who seems to have figured it all out, what do you say to someone who's listening who's saying, you know what, I want more purpose, I want fulfillment, I want optimal health, what do I do? For almost just three decades, I start after I finish my meditation in the morning, I have four intentions. I figured this out a long time ago. If these four intentions are met, then everything is fine. The first intention is joyful, energetic body. So I don't do anything to hurt my body. Whether so you're not doing CrossFit? Uh, no, I'm doing <laughs> yoga. Okay. I walk 10,000 steps, so I eat good food. and I. What exercise. does good food look like to you? Farm to table. These okay. days it's mostly plant-based, okay. almost. Well, I'd say it is plant-based. Sure. I'm not embarrassed about being a vegetarian anymore. It's become the so vogue. So no, no red meat, no chicken? Nothing. Okay. Okay. So um, joyful, energetic body is my daily intention. Second daily intention is loving, compassionate heart. Why bother otherwise? Number three is reflective, alert mind. And number four is lightness of being. Now I guarantee whoever is listening there, if you keep these four in intentions, <clears throat> everything else will be added on. So can you just walk through the first one I get, maybe walk through the other three and just explain to people what that looks like? And okay, first one, joyful, energetic yep, body. Totally get it. So don't put toxins in your body, avoid toxic people, toxic environment, toxic jobs, anything that brings toxins into your body. We can measure that now sure. through inflammation and all that. Loving, compassionate heart. Everybody wants love. And all you have to do is practice four A's, as I call them. Attention, good listening, be a good listener. Acceptance, don't try to change people unless they want <laughs> advice from you. Then send them a link to Body, Mind, and Green. Mind, Body, Green. Mind, mind Body, first. Green. I go mind first. It starts up well, here. Okay. You know that. Mind, Body, Green. Send them a link. But otherwise, don't accept people as they are. Even Trump. It's You can't... Oh, wow, he's, that's a tall order. Yeah, but... Everybody is who they are from a certain context, right? He's still trying to please his dad or something, you know? <laughs> who You're did, right about that. Probably didn't accept him. Okay, so loving, compassionate heart. People are wanting attention, listening, acceptance, appreciation, 
They want to be noticed for the good that they do and affection. They want you to care about them. Mm. Just focus on that and you'll have a loving, compassionate heart. And you'll feel good That's in your it. body too. That's it. Yeah. Third is to have a reflective, quiet, alert mind. Not a positive mind. Positive minds can be very turbulent. I know a lot of people who are exasperatingly positive. You know, they're like Pollyannas. You cannot shut them up. For me, that's almost another form of stress. Mm. But a quiet mind is very interesting. When your mind is quiet and reflective and alert, then you have access to intuition and creativity and vision and imagination. and The right thing comes to you at the right moment without any anticipation or regrets. And... You know, your life is kind of in a state of flow because your mind is quiet. And then the last step is lightness of being, which is really no resistance, no anticipation, no regrets. Just this moment. It's alive. Mm. And what's alive is consciousness. And that is the highest uh, experience you can have because with that lightness of being comes what people call flow, peak experiences, transcendence, a surrender to mystery, because it's all a mystery. I mean, there's no explanation for existence or awareness of existence, which I mentioned the first sure. two problems, the hard problems. What is the nature of the universe and what is the nature of consciousness? No explanation, which leads to an astounding conclusion. That is, there's no explanation for anything. <laughs> there's no explanation for you and me being here right now because there's no explanation for the universe. Now, we can make up explanations, Big Bang and sure. God, and you know, these are our constructs. Today, the constructs are scientific because they lead to technology, but don't let anyone fool you that science is a way to get to truth because science is another system of thought without knowing what the source of thought is, which is consciousness. Right? So science is a methodology in consciousness, just another story. Mathematical stories, theories, uh -huh. observations, validation, experiment, all in consciousness. You can't get behind consciousness. And the last one? Oh, wait, we got two that's more. That's lightness of being. No. That's, that's lightness Joyful, of being. Joyful, energetic body, loving, compassionate heart, reflective, quiet, alert mind, lightness of being. So... Everything else you, follows. Otherwise, you can spend your money, become a billionaire, you can work hard, become a billionaire, get sick and spend the money now trying to recover. So what do you think makes those people so unhappy? Because they're looking for and something unhealthy. outside. They're searching, they're searching outside of themselves and yeah, not looking within. Yeah, yeah, not looking within. There's no within, there's no without. There's just you as being. And so how the do, rest how, is a story. How do you look at, how do you define success? I define success, first, the progressive realization of worthy goals. Worthy goals means goals that will bring happiness and joy to you, but also to others. Second, the ability to love and have compassion. And the third is to discover who you are. Because no, mm. most people can't answer the simple question, who am I? They give you their name, <laughs> which is another construct, you know. Anybody could name you anything. Or they give you their nationality or sure. their economic status. That's not who you are. 
So how do you instill this? You've you've got two amazing kids who I I, I know. Yes. Now three grandchildren. And then grandchildren. So like, how do you, you know, I'm sure there are parents listening who are like, okay, I got a three-year-old, a 10-year-old. Like, how do you, in your opinion, how can you help raise a quote-unquote conscious child? Okay. First three years, don't even try. Just just be the best, most uh, nourishing, loving being you can be for your kids. If they get the right attention and love and appreciation and affection and acceptance, they will be secure. That's the first most important. I don't think Mr. Trump got it, okay? So that's why we have a disaster uh, at the highest levels of office. But there there are many CEOs like that. There are many national leaders. In fact, look across the globe. Every national leader is a dysfunctional narcissist. (laughs) I can't find a single national leader in the world right now. You can't change a narcissist. Narcissists are very hard to change. Yeah, because they didn't get enough attention. That they're crying for attention. So first three years are very important. Make your child secure by giving that child all the love you can. After that, I was very lucky. Uh, my parents were storytellers, and they always told me stories about amazing people. And then they would kind of hint that, you know, you could be like that. <laughs> and so kids into stories. Anyone you remember in particular? Or oh, too young? so many. I remember all my stories. Who did you so want to be as a kid? You... I wanted to be God. You wanted to be God? Yeah, I as thought... a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I said, if I was God, how would I design a human body? Could I do it better? Most kids are like, I want to be a fireman. I yeah, want to be yeah. a God. I, I wanted to see what, how does God think? You know, everything else, that's something Einstein said, right? I want to know how God thinks everything else is a detail, (laughs) Um, is a minor detail. But, you know, how do you design this thing called a human body or a bird in Mm -hmm. flight or an insect for that matter or a plant? You know, so actually when I taught in medical school, I used to ask my students, so if you were God, how would you design a fat molecule? They thought I was crazy, but then I would get it out of them that, in fact, they had the ability, without knowing anything, to come up in their imagination with the perfect design hmm. for anything, because it's all there in consciousness. So anyway, I, so you I was love, brought up. You got love. A lot of love, storytelling. Of What's story. that? Is, or the, is that the secret sauce? That is the secret sauce. And by the age of 10 or 12, I think then a contemplative meditation or practice really helps because nobody sits down quietly. Especially these days uh, with kids yeah. and devices. It's they insane. don't they don't sit down quietly. They're not in touch with themselves. No. It's tough. We our yeah. daughter is eleven months old and she's she's amazing and we love her and you already see her going for the iPhone. She knows. She just she goes she goes for the phone. She's got her brain is going to be different than yeah. when even now I notice the brains of millennials are different than mine. But then these other how generations. So? You, how would you describe? They take everything for granted. <laughs> I never did. You know, I was like, uh, my God. You know, I'm living in India, r- relatively good middle class family, but there was a lot of envisioning and dreaming and fantasizing and imagination and storytelling 
there was a lot of culture surrounding me with theater and drama and poetry and art and music and uh, a lot of uh, cultural mix uh, it was also very leisurely mm-hmm. the childhood was very leisurely now you know even my own kids i see you know they're going to taekwondo then they're going for soccer practice then they're going for piano then they're going for mathematics <laughs> and i'm telling my own kids uh, what are you doing you know rushing to conform because nobody who's a conformist ever changed the world oh i love that you know so um it's not about education it's about knowing who you are so when you talk about changing the world you've had access to amazing people and some of these people are your close friends you've known mm. over the years like who, who are some of the people who have inspired you or inspire you today those who've inspired me i'd start with my parents because they were amazing you know my father was an md cardiologist very famous at one time uh, cardiologist uh, the royal heart hospital in england the queen he was a cardiologist to the royal family in england mm-hmm. she's still alive but my father's gone um but on weekends he would see patients free of charge they would come from all over the country my mother would prepare food for them and before these people left um for their homes which were in trains and buses and all my parents would make sure they had enough money for their um, fair back mm. to their home mm-hmm. and they were fed a meal and they were seen by a doctor and my mother would pray for the patients so you know and my father was an amazing cardiologist yeah when the india china war happened he was up in tibet uh, measuring heart pressures and pulmonary artery pressures uh, he was one of the first people to notice what we now call mountain sickness high altitude disease mm. but he was a great humanitarian my mother was like the most uh, sacred person i could imagine but a storyteller too so i would say there was the two luminaries in my life before anyone else later um i met nelson mandela i met uh, uh, bishop tutu what were they like amazing yeah. and um, people like his holiness the lai lama Uh, amazing people mother well, teresa describe you you're you're mentioning a lot of spiritual leaders icons like what what's it like being in their presence is it palpable each one is different yeah. by the way so nelson mandela the his presence was um humility and magnanimity largesse in giving um, um his holiness the dalai lama is joyful almost like a child <laughs> um uh i met others i met political leaders like oscar arias who was a nobel laureate uh, was a president of costa rica which as you know has no army right um an amazing uh, luminary in himself not that well known other than he got the nobel prize but there are a lot of people who are not famous that i've met who are uh, amazingly present and authentically spiritual. Hmm. But they all are different. Sure. They're all unique in their own self. So wellness has come so far mm-hmm. in so many ways since you first Let's actually uh, I'd like to define wellness and well-being as two different things. Okay, I'm all ears. So wellness is 
I'm well if my blood pressure is normal, if my cholesterol is good. So that's, uh, that's even debatable these days yeah, with doctors. Yeah, it's debatable. <laughs> but in general, if sure. I have a good, healthy body, I'm well. Sure. Um, but now it includes mind, body, emotional sure. well-being. Wellness is measurable. Well-being is a state of being mm. where <laughs> where you're independent of experience in a sense that you don't even have, you don't buy into the constructs of body or mind or universe or God, you recognize that these are human constructs for modes of knowing and experience. So there's always a connection to the transcendent. Hmm. There's loss of fear of death. There's an awakening to reality. And there is joy, spontaneous joy, and everything that comes with that, peace and love and compassion empathy, which is your natural state before you were bamboozled <laughs> into the hypnosis of social conditioning. How'd that That's well How did we get bamboozled? It's historical. You know, it's like nobody has an original thought. Every thought is recycled. I mean, I really question if anyone actually other than Einstein or Mozart or these great artists, you know, uh, you want to hang out with the sages, psychotics, geniuses, and artists of the world. <laughs> then you'll realize that there's something very mysterious, and it's so mysterious it's unsolvable, and you surrender to it. And then you're happy, you're joyful. And um, that's a state of well-being. Well-being is the ultimate uh, state of being. So... It's wholeness. Where, where do you? Where would you like to see? Where do you think well-being and wellness? I'll say both. Where, where do you think they're going to be in five years, ten years? If we survive this madness, this collective insanity, which we need to address, by the way, what, what's most troubling for you? If you're prioritizing the insanity, what's at the it's, top of your it's list? It's interconnected. It's an ecosystem of insanity. So. Solving problems through violence sure. is totally insanity. Yep. And it's at every level. Personal relationships, social relationships, professional nations. So that's insanity. Eco-destruction is insanity. Creating climate change is insanity. Having a world with 50% of the people less than $2 a day or whatever. Radical poverty is insanity. Social injustice is insanity. They're all interdependent. It's all not being in touch with that which is already whole within us. You know, that's why, you know, body, mind, spirit, world are a unified experience in consciousness. But nobody's in touch with that. So, but anyway, I think we need to address collective insanity mm -hmm. through a critical mass, which is, you know, 30 years ago I made the decision I want to help uh, collective consciousness move in the direction of a more peaceful, just, sustainable, healthier, and joyful world. And I see that happening with organizations like you and many others. Sure. A lot of people doing a lot of good in the world. But if we survive this collective insanity, there's a possibility we may not. And if that happens, then the human species was an interesting experiment, but it didn't work. 
<laughs> you know, so uh, the universe will do something else with uh, its creativity. What do you think our runway is here? It's short right now. It's a, a few decades. Okay, wow. At the most. <clears throat> but people, they're brilliant people. I mean, sure. I meet people who are developing um, regenerative agriculture. Sure. Paul, do you know Paul Hawken? Yeah. Paul Hawken yeah. was just on here last it's week. Amazing. It's a huge yeah. plan with Project yeah. Drawdown. I'm a big fan. Yeah. Uh, I don't know him personally, but I'm a fan. You'll meet at our next event. Okay, I'll do that. (laughs) I'll do that. So um, there are people who now have the creativity to reverse every single damage we've done. But they can't do it by themselves. Sure. You need an ecosystem, an integrated ecosystem, which is what life is. It's an integrated ecosystem. And right now it's dysfunctional. But you take all the people with their creativity right now and you could see emergence happening very fast. Mm. Emergence, in my view, happens when you have people from different um, a diversity of disciplines, artists, scientists, biologists, humanitarians, musicians, storytellers. If you have a diversity of talent, you have complete open system, you have transparency, you put them together, which is what you are probably doing at the a revitalized event, which huh? you're coming to yeah, a revitalized I, event. Uh, yeah, I hope I'm coming <laughs> to. Then emergence happens. Yeah. Okay, and that emergence is desperately needed right now. But if we emerge from the insanity, I've already picked up my visitors badge, by the way, so I'm not going to participate in this insanity, other than trying to hope for emergence through a collective ecosystem mm-hmm. that wants a higher vision. If that happens, I think this would be an amazing world. It could be, an, um, we would have heaven. Sure. What people call heaven right here. I think my take on this, <laughs> I know I said I, my, I'm speaking mm-hmm. with the ego, but yeah, I, yeah. I think things are so bad here in the, you know, I think, specifically with with Trump and politics and climate change and, and, and mental health, that in a good way, it's woken people up. Yes, it has. And I think, you know, if we look at like every great movement, U.S. civil rights, you, gay, you go through it, like something happened. And I think because things are like they are, a lot of people who were maybe on the fringe, not completely bought in, have woken up. You look at me too, all this stuff happening. And, and I think that, my hope. Well, I don't. Want, well, I don't know if I want to use use the word hope, but my my <laughs> beyond hope and despair. Beyond hope and despair is true creativity. Okay. I would think <laughs> that this could be a good thing for us. I think so. I think so. In fact, I often, you know, even though I voted for Hillary Clinton and I consider myself liberal, I think um, we wouldn't have seen the 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 demise of an old construct so fast sure. as, it, as we're seeing now. Uh, so I agree with you. This is both death and resurrection. Yep. I hope. So speaking of that, what, what would you, you know, I, I, what do you want to be remembered for? You know, 50 years from now, 100 years from now. Gone. You would just be gone? Yeah, this Deepak was here time. and gone. Gone. But <laughs> what maybe you? the fragrance lingers. Or <laughs> <laughs> Deepak, the, the scent. Do you have a fragrance? <laughs> no, I don't. I'm speaking metaphorically. Okay. 
Well, another, I want to go back. I want to talk about your new book um, and bring it back to, to healing. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you started off, we started off by talking about uh, people see a doctor, same, same medication, diagnosis. Some people recover, some people don't. What, what, what did you see and what are you seeing now with people and how they're approaching healing from mindset, from, from consciousness, from connection that really makes a difference and allows some people to heal and, and others don't heal. Mm-hmm. So my last book was called You Are the Universe, which addresses basic prob- um, conundrums in science. What was there before the Big Bang? How did time come into existence? Why is the universe so finely tuned for mind and life? How did life begin? Um, is evolution guided by consciousness? These are big things that I addressed in my last book, which was with a physicist. It's called You Are the Universe. Mm-hmm. And the conclusion of the book was these problems are unsolvable unless you address consciousness. So my next book that is written with uh, co-written with Rudy Tanzi yep. is called The Healing Self. That's the one I'm talking about. And yes. <laughs> that is about what is the self that heals itself. So once you realize that there's no such thing as uh, as a separate self and you return to the true self, then healing happens by itself. It's self-regulation, homeostasis. We can measure this now with inflammatory markers through epigenetics. So I talk, we talk about a few basic things in there, like good sleep, meditation and stress management, healthy emotions, movement, yoga, breathing, um, uh, eating food that is not contaminated through industrial food production, getting in touch with nature. But then in the book, we actually go to what is the healing self, and it's you. So how is that, you know, what what has me so interested is it seems like these are some of the things you discovered early on. Mm -hmm. How how has your thinking evolved between, you know, 30, 40 years ago to today in this new book? With just the new science, neuroplasticity, epigenetics, gene regulation, gene modulation, measuring inflammatory markers, everything is so measurable that uh, what people are calling me fringe or, uh, you know. You got 23andMe now, you can go get your DNA. Yeah, but (laughs) remember, even DNA is a human construct for a (laughs) mode of knowing. Who is it that knows? What is it that knows? What is it that wants to know the nature of knowing? I think unless we go deeper, we're not going to evolve. Right. We have to get to that fundamental reality, the ontological primitive of the universe, which at the most fundamental level is your true self. So is, in other words, is the mindset that's a commonality between people? Is Is it this idea of you know, simply phrasing letting go, having faith, Faith acceptance. is a very, see, I'd like to think of belief and faith in uh, two different things. So belief is a cover-up for insecurity. If mm. I asked you, do you believe in gravity? You'd say that's ridiculous. Right. Okay, do you believe in electricity? It's ridiculous. Um, so most people who are fervent believers are fundamentalists. That includes sure. the scientists uh, who are 
basically prone to scientism. They think that science is the only answer for every problem you have, including why do you fall in love or why do you think of your grandmother or, you know, why are you bored? So, <laughs> so fundamentalism is based on belief. But faith is something else. Faith is the ability to step into the unknown, let go of all your cleverness, Rumi has a beautiful poem where he says, exchange your cleverness for bewilderment. Mm. Okay. With that embracing of the mystery comes something very beautiful. And that is not only embracing the mystery, but surrendering to it. And with that comes a deep humility. And with that deep humility comes reverence for existence. Call it whatever you want, God, universe, sure. whatever. It doesn't matter. But unless you have experienced deep humility and reverence, then true love can never be born. Ultimately, love is the only solution. Again, a cliche, but truth. But love is not an emotion. It's the ultimate truth at the heart of the universe. Mm -hmm. And so, with this book... Why does there, you know, what, what, what should people expect to take away? They need to pick up the book, first uh, of all. You don't want to give it away, yeah. but why does, why does everyone need to, to pick it up? To feel empowered more than anything else. There, again, there'll be, you know, there's a selection bias. Not everybody is going to read this book. I'm now beyond that stage, whether, you know, <laughs> whether it's going to be a success, bestseller, who buys it. I'm not thinking of that. But for those who want empowerment. Which leads me to believe it probably will be. <laughs> yeah. you're letting go you've surrendered yeah. yeah yeah maybe but I think they'll feel empowered but I don't want it to stop there I want it ultimately to lead to deeper self-inquiry which is the only thing that uh, we're missing in this world people are not even asking a basic question of, like who am I or what do I want why is my life meaningless or meaningful, <laughs> you know? I think we need that, much more of that reflective self-inquiry. So I know, I know you go to bed early, but what keeps you up at night? And then what has you excited every morning? I like to be surprised, so I don't make plans. And even if I have plans, they're on my schedule. I don't look at it till the morning or sometimes at night before I want to know what time you know I should be up and about out of the house if, if there's an appointment but by and large I don't think of tomorrow and I have um, a great day every day um, I um, I am up at night in a different sense I'm awake to awareness does anything ever stress you out at night like what? No, get, you know, no, I, I, I don't. Well, what used to stress you out that you were able able to overcome? Well, as an intern, I was and resident. I was obviously stressed out, smoking and drinking and all of that. Then I was stressed about my patients and you know the outcome. I was stressed about my own health. Then I was stressed about my kids. I mean, I went through all the stages, you know. But then everything turned out to be better than. I and then, when did you get finally get to that place where you're like, I think I'm just done with getting stressed about anything? I would say it's at least, so I'm 71, it's at least 35 years since I've oh, wow. had any real stress. No, 
Yeah, I mean, there are flickers of it watching sure. the election and <laughs> sports. Yeah, no, not that like, I leave to my son. Not like Gotham watching yeah, the Patriots. Uh, yeah, he would destroy the furniture <laughs> if, if the Patriots lost. So, if you could go back in time and give advice to twenty-something Deepak, what, what what advice would that be? It's a privilege to have this experience that we call the human experience. So make the most of it. Uh, and you will not make the most of it if your life is meaningless and devoid of joy and love. That's all. Amen to that. Okay. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Thank Everyone sure. go pick up Deepak's new book or pick out, you've had 88 to choose from. 89 now. Yeah. Thank you so much for everything. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.